Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. So we have a, a special topic today, which is a, a more deeper focus on China. So with me today, I have Stefan Gerlach. Uh, Stefan, welcome. Thank you very much, Moz. It's always fun to do this with you. So um, we thought we would do a, uh, a, a relatively quick podcast today to do a bit of a deeper focus on China. And uh, the basis to this um, meeting uh, or, or this podcast today was um, about 15 to 20 meetings that Stefan and I did towards the uh, end of January 2024 uh, while we were presenting the EFG Outlook. And uh, those meetings were obviously very interesting between sort of private and, and public sector economists between the two cities of Hong Kong uh, and Singapore, uh, and and somewhere in between as well during the flight. So uh, it was quite interesting um, conversations throughout it. So, uh, so the view is today that Stefan and I uh, are going to go through a really uh, a composite or mosaic of all of these uh, conversations, and uh, there's obviously not one single attribution. Uh, so, um, Stefan, um, uh, let's maybe start off with um, uh, my first question to you, and we'll, we'll run it as a Q&A between the two of us, because uh, we were lucky enough to be at most of the meetings, although uh, you and I both had independent meetings as well. Um, so, um, you know, in terms of maybe starting with the the economy and, if you like, the post-COVID China economy, what were your sort of initial thoughts and certainly from the, the views that were expressed? Well, I think my sort of overriding summary of, of, the, of the many conversations that, that we had was that sentiment about the Chinese economy is really, is really quite, quite poor. Um, they made this abrupt turn in COVID policy at the end of 2022, and I think we all thought that this would lead us to a burst of economic activity in uh, in mainland China. Um, and it sort of looked like that for a month or two, but then things sort of started to go in the wrong in the wrong direction. Equity prices fell sharply throughout uh, 2023 and a lot of uh, news regarding uh, or a lot of unfortunate bad news regarding the property markets. Um, and so on. So, so I sort of left all these conversations with the sense that uh, things had not gone as well as was uh, was generally um, expected. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think people were uh, were were more um, negative than I had uh, than I had anticipated. What, what was your sense? Yeah, no, I would say that being going to uh, Asia for a good sort of uh, twenty years plus. And I'll say that this is probably the most negative uh, that I've ever seen it. And uh, not just from the people we met, but also sort of sentiment from, uh, you know, investors was also uh, pretty negative. And, and you could see the culmination of, um, I guess, U.S. policy to China, where a lot of U.S. institutional investors have been pulling their money from China over the last, call it, couple of years, as there's been this sort of general trend of um, uh, of a sort of anti-China sentiment, certainly in in the United States, and then I think more recently, uh, certainly in the last couple of months, we've started to see that same sentiment starting to be expressed by European investors, uh, who also pulled out uh, a lot of money out of um, Chinese stocks over the last 
a month or so. Uh, and I think this sort of, you know, the, certainly the, the private sector economists and strategists that we met were very, very depressed because obviously commission incomes have been down, uh, you know, quite substantially. Uh, you know, market activity has, has dropped and they're very, very sensitive to it. Um, and so, uh, you know, as I said, uh, certainly from an investor's point of view, it was, you know, very, very, very negative. Um, but as we'll talk a little bit later, you know, sometimes huge negativity does lead to market bottoms and then recovery. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on. So let's let's try to tackle some of the key topics that came up, um, uh, Stefan. So maybe the first one is around uh, housing and um and obviously that seems to be the crux of the of the concerns by by many what were the kind of key drivers from the discussions we had around um real estate in china well the housing market of course is hugely important uh, in china f- from I, I think sort of from two perspectives on the one hand just uh, as in all countries construction is a big part of uh, of the economy and is a big part of fluctuations in the business cycle. Uh, as, some, as, as, as some American economists uh, put it, the housing cycle is the business cycle. In China, of course, uh, housing is hugely important for the still relatively small middle class uh, whose, uh, whose wealth or whose perception of wealth is very strongly tied to the fortunes of the, of the property market. And there seems to be quite a negative view about the about about the property uh, market. Uh, prices have been coming down, and uh, of course that makes people feel less wealthy. In China, it has that additional little effect through the fiscal position of local governments, uh, because local governments have been earning quite a bit of revenue by selling off land. And the value of that land, of course, falls when property prices are coming down. So this uh, this uh, downswing in the property market has had a big impact on the fiscal or financial situation of local governments and local government uh, financial bodies and so on. And that I think has aggravated uh, the uh, effects of the of, of the downturn. So this is um, it's not good for the macroeconomy. It's not good for the. Uh, perception of wealth in the in the small but growing middle class and it's certainly not good for the fiscal position of local government so it's a bit of a triple whammy i think the the economy has uh, has endured mm. i'd add sort of just a couple of points uh, to that just thinking about the root causes of of the real estate market of course uh, the government has been um you know cracking down in terms of you know over stimulus of 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 the real estate market over the last sort of 10 or 20 years in particular. And, and that has been certainly a major concern. And obviously this sort of policy of um, sharing the wealth across the economy is pretty key because obviously real estate um, in the hands of just a few wealthy people uh, doesn't really um, 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 associate itself to social harmony. But um, um, so the, so the crackdown of the real estate market over the last sort of 10, call it 10 years plus, uh, has led us to where we are. But I think what's exacerbated the situation is the demographic situation um, where um, you know, China is now going onto that cliff or where the population starts to diminish. And 
Um, one of the charts that we've been talking about over the course of the last six months or so is that uh, you know China <coughs> is en route to roughly lose about 600 million odd people in population by the end of the century. Uh, it still leaves a very large population, much bigger than the United States, but still you've got this sort of cliff that, that comes along. And uh, that's approximately you know, the entire population of Latin America. So it's uh, certainly um, a large uh, proportion of people. So I think that, you know, the de demographic trends, and we've seen sort of China, Korea, um, Italy, Germany, that are also starting to suffer uh, around that sort of dem demographic time bomb and what it means for land prices and, and, and real estate in general. So I think that's the first point. The second point, I think, which was made to us, which I thought was very interesting, was the net migration statistics. So uh, due to COVID um, uh, in particular, but also um, just the cost of uh, housing in, in the cities, the net migration numbers have also slowed down uh, quite considerably. Um, and that was, um, I'll say, a key statistic, I think, to watch out for uh, going forward. To, to get a sense of whether the real estate market or the improvement in the economy is starting to come through. And so net migration was a number, I think uh, a number of people told us was, was a key figure to watch out for. Yeah, I think I think all of that is uh, uh, all of that is, is right. And this was a really message we got from many people. Another message which really struck me was that a number of people said that while the property market is not doing well, the risk of a collapse is, in fact, is, was seen as remote. Uh, and people made this argument uh, that the authorities may not yet have sort of designed uh, good methods to deal with this, but they are very much aware of what the problems are. They recognize the problem. They said that um, um, sort of... Um, Civil servants, at least, or or those uh, in official positions, were were very much aware of what was going on. They had they don't set policy; policy set at a high political level. But they were not worried about a, a collapse. They said that the authorities, and it was a message many people repeat, uh, repeated, the authorities have quite a large set of potential tools that they can use um, to ensure that the market uh, sort of stays afloat, if you like. And they also mentioned that many banks in China are state-owned, and that gives the authorities an extra margin of maneuver. Um, so, and I think this is a very important thing we have seen in many um, Western economists or advanced economists, as the IMF calls them. Um, uh, if you have a housing market collapse, they can have a huge macroeconomic impact. So if you can avoid that, of course, means that uh, will would be very, very beneficial for for the economy. So despite the fact that the sentiment was not very, very bad, uh, the, despite the fact that the sentiment was bad, uh, there was not the sense that this was just um, you know this is all going to go to pieces. Rather, um, things were 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 difficult, but uh, something would happen. The authorities would would uh, would adjust, and I thought that was a very positive message did you did you get that sense too yeah so i think um um yeah an outright collapse of the financial system driven by um housing was not something that uh, people were concerned about i think that's that, that's quite clear i think the um the worry certainly on the private sector side 
was that how much pain needs to be felt before those policy tools start to get used. Uh, and I think that was expressed quite a few times that, uh, you know, is it a, a further 20% drop in the stock market that, that drives that, um, uh, you know, that fear uh, or, um, uh, you know, riots on the streets that then forces policymakers to, to, uh, to react to it. Um, so I think the, the worry was more about, well, what is the catalyst to get those policy tools enacted? Um, and, um, and I think that's what people were kind of waiting for. Um, and I said, some people felt that sentiment was so bad that it's got to happen now. Some felt that there's probably another you know, 15 to 20% drop in the stock market to force that. And, and other people said, well, th there needs to be protests on the streets as to, you know, the collapse in real estate prices um, um, uh, to sort of get, you know, policymakers into, uh, into action. And I think, um, I think another sort of view expressed around that was that this kind of forward-looking policymaking was... You know, in some respects, diminished uh, over the course of the last you know few years, um, and it was well. We only seem to act when there is crisis upon us, rather than sort of anticipating these things and then reacting ahead of time. I think there was a a view that 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 um, this was going to be um, reactive policy rather than proactive policy. Yes, there was a consistent uh, message, uh, and a number of people said that uh, what we learned from the U-turn on COVID policy was that if there are public protests against policy, policy can change very radically, very quickly. These are very pragmatic policymakers, uh, and I thought that was a uh, that was a an interesting uh, view. What I think quite widely held held by by many by many people. Another thing that came out which struck me was that um, a number of people said that these, many of these problems have their same root course, and that is sort of a political change away from focusing on sort of growing a big market economy. Uh, uh, and, had been, and they were arguing that had been sort of uh, too much free market and the continued sort of growth of the private sector of, Almost without control, may may erode the the power of the of of the party, um, and uh, that that sort of was one factor that that had a sort of shifted policy in the direction away from sort of just promoting economic growth and, and for policy in a sense now takes a wider view. There is a concern about inequality. There is a concern about the associated risk of social instability, and uh, and, and so on. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. Um, um, this came this came across, as I thought, quite um, quite widely from a num from a number of uh, people. I mean, in, in a sense, uh, we have sort of seen that many people commenting, many outsiders commenting on, on Chinese economic uh, policy are, are noticing this increased emphasis on national security considerations and perhaps a somewhat lower focus on economic uh, objectives and economic uh, policy. Yeah, no, definitely. I think associated with that was obviously, you know, um, uh, you know, anti-corruption drives uh, that were also part of that sort of, uh, um, uh, you know, policy initiative, uh, you know, away from kind of free markets, much more to... Um, 
to I guess, you know, overall stability and control of the uh, Communist Party or by the Communist Party. And I think uh, any any sort of, you know, too much freedom to, to private market, to, to the private sector economy or or to entrepreneurs, uh, as, as we've seen in the past, was um, um, would potentially undermine the power of the Communist Party. And I think that, um, um, uh, you know, that, I guess just as an external observer rather than, I don't think anyone specifically mentioned that, but I think the implication was that, um, that, uh, you know, social unity was, was key and anything other than social unity would lead to, um, uh, to destabilization of, of the political system. And I think that, um, that, that was kind of an underlying tone, I think that came through that. Um, and then anti-corruption was also um, a, a key policy. Lots of people talked about, you know, um, um, you know, banks that had been reckless in terms of their lending um, to some of these big real estate companies, um, and uh, that also seemed, and also sort of local uh, policy uh, financing as well. So, you know, I think that came across quite heavily. Yes, indeed, indeed it did. I mean, interestingly, of course, many of these policies, anti-corruption policies, for instance, uh, you know, harnessing market growth or economic growth and, and trying to spread wealth across society is something that uh, has been going on in, in uh, you know, in Western Europe and in the US and in, in market, in, you know, in many economies for 100 years. So it's, it's not a, a surprising development uh, from an international perspective but i think perhaps it is more the the rapid change in that direction within china which is uh, which which is uh, striking corruption is not a good thing anywhere and we mm. always and everywhere try to sort of fight it and uh, so so of course that makes uh, it's not surprising that the chinese authorities would like to combat uh, corruption uh, yeah. at all no, exactly, but certainly for for financial markets uh, and how se- sentiment is driven, it certainly does have uh, you know does have a psychological impact rather than a, 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 in the end, anti corruption is very good for an economy. I think there's no doubt about that, uh, but uh, certainly uh, the psychological impact in the short term is uh, is uh, pretty heavy. Yeah, I was yeah. I was struck by that. Some people sort of mentioned that. Uh, this had had a, quite a big effect on sentiment, and some financial market participants sort of was apparently sort of took the view that it would seem sort of safer in some political sense of lending to local governments rather than to corporations and uh, and so on. So it might have had an impact on the on the flow of of lending yeah. um, towards more politically sort of safer safer areas, which may or may not be a good thing. Yeah, no, that's a very very good point uh, because it just reinforces the strength of the SMEs, um, um, you know, specifically uh, the state-owned companies. So that certainly has, uh, you know, big impact. So let's move on to um, solutions, right, um, Stefan? Because I think, think, um, you know, everyone kind of knows where the the challenges have have been. Uh, And obviously, um, uh, you know, the biggest solution that, China's got to work to is um, growing that middle class. Of course, you know, if they were able to do that, despite the dem- demographic change, you know, a, a middle class that was, you know, relatively affluent would be very powerful from a Chinese economic 
perspective. So, um, no, how do we how do we attack that? What are the solutions to that problem? And I guess for financial markets, what's important is that you know money's not thrown down a well, <laughs> which was a comment that a few people made. That uh, you know if you if you throw as we always say, if you throw you know good money after bad, it doesn't solve anything. Um, and so uh, so the solutions are pretty important. And uh, maybe we can you know. In your mind, you know, what were the, if you like, the positive solutions or what were the negative solutions? So from a financial markets, if there were negative solutions, that's, well, this will have a short-term, you know, hit to the economy, but ultimately it just disappears again versus something that's actually going to be sustainable. Yeah, I was very much struck by the fact that there was sort of a consistent message that, you know, you, we can't just build, you know, bridges and roads to nowhere. There's been too much physical infrastructure um, uh, spending and you know this is not uh, this has partially been local governments trying to carry favor with with the central government uh, they have therefore pushed for for local investment programs uh, and so on yet at the same time people said you know if you look at the if you look at the big Chinese cities Shanghai uh, Beijing and so on, and you compare them to other big cities in Asia, to Hong Kong or Singapore and so on, there's quite a bit more sort of local type uh, um, infrastructure to be built. People are commenting on the, the sort of lack of, uh, lack of things like, um, you know, schools or parks and, uh, and childcare facilities and, and so on and so forth. So there was quite a bit of, there was quite a, bit, a sense that uh, you know, there's still quite a lot more that needs to be. We need, we need more sort of perhaps sort of social uh, and local infrastructure spending, and perhaps you know we don't need to spend so much uh, on bridges and tunnels and so on. Furthermore, also was and this was very interesting. Someone made this comment uh, that you know China now has a very integrated uh, a train highway system, and of course that's very conducive to economic growth, reducing costs for firms to to trade goods and so on, and, and for people to move have a huge impact on economic activity. So there was this sort of, uh, yeah, there was a sense that it, they had perhaps done the wrong thing, but it was also a sense that there's still quite a bit more to do. Spending needs to be targeted perhaps a little bit better. I, I was quite struck by that. How did you see that? Yeah, no, and so I think the they were kind of, a couple of key key thoughts, right? The first of all is that infrastructure spending um, to build, for example, um, you know, a railway line just where, you know, um, uh, a plot of land was owned by the local government, which they could sell to to a real estate agent to enhance his value, um, was a was a question that someone you know raised that that it probably wasn't really spent in the right way and it was there to juice up real estate prices in that particular uh in that particular area um and so it wasn't coordinated well it wasn't spent wisely uh and and you're right you know whereas the payback on for example um, uh, a big hospital or a payback on uh on a clinic or a, or a park is actually not is not there, right? So um, it doesn't necessarily suddenly mean in the short term your the the land of the, the the price of that particular piece of land is going to go up. 
Um, and so I think there was a definitely sort of a shift. And, and I think it goes back to one of the underlying points we made right at the beginning is that how do you get net migration up again, right? How do you, how do you bring that forward and, and, and make sure when those people move from those rural areas into those cities that they have a very positive living experience, which I think is your point. Um, and so money needs to be spent there before, you know, that net migration numbers, you know, continues to, um, or, you know, continue to improve, um, because there is, there is going to be a hollowing out of the rural areas essentially. Um, and, um, uh, as the population gets much, much older. So, um, so I think that, that to me is the sort of, you know, where the money needs to be spent. Um, there was another thought that, that uh, there should be sort of big fiscal transfers, right, to to individuals. So uh, helicopter money was was um, you know from a stock market perspective would be the real positive dynamic, but clearly you know that that wasn't going to fly. No, uh, a number of people, I think someone said that it was a consensus among Chinese economists. I know exactly what that means, but that helicopter money, direct fiscal transfers, to, uh, would be uh, would be the right way forward. Uh, but also that the political authorities were very skeptical about about that, and I suspect for uh, for good reasons. Um, uh, but it's, it, as you say, it's clear to get uh, to get um, the economy going. It, it's essential that you need to do something with consumption. I mean, consumption is two thirds of total spending in the economy, uh, and of course. You know, there are some wealthy people, but not that many of them. Um, and there are, of course, particularly in China, a large number of poorer people on the countryside and so on. The bulk of spending will come from the, or, uh, from the middle class, uh, which is still small. And that's really the, uh, where something has to be, has to be done to support, uh, to support and to grow the middle class and to support and grow domestic spending as a driver of the Chinese economy. As opposed to uh, initially, I think uh, there was a lot of focus on, on boosting exports, and more recently there's been a, a lot of focus on boosting investment in 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 housing as as a driver of the economy. I think now there was this sense that consumption needs to become this locomotive that powers the uh, Chinese economy forward, and the big driver in consumption spending must come from the middle. From the middle classes, that was quite a striking message. I felt the um, the other point on on the um, uh, on the sort of I guess fiscal impulse side was the kind of rather novel notion of uh, of buying back all these unsold units from these developers and turning them into um, social housing, which obviously has a huge impact uh, in terms of um, um, you know creating wealth in that sort of uh, I guess the poorer. Uh, parts of society. Yeah, a number of people mentioned that uh, that idea. So there must be something that has been has been discussed. Yes, and that was sort of seen by many as a way of sort of kickstarting the uh, the housing markets uh, again by sort of removing this overhang of unsold and partially constructed apartments. Would also give a big boost to uh, to the middle classes or those who receive these apartments uh, and so on. So, yeah, so that was seen as a um, uh, a key idea, and it's been very interesting to see what uh, what might happen in 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 that area. Having a big overhang of unsold apartments uh, 
Uh, it's not a good thing for any economy because that has have played a role in many housing market downswings in, in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. So tackling that issue, I think, uh, might be a way might be a way forward. So in kind of in summary, thinking about the um, the stimulus required, shall we call it the Gerlach Afzal plan, uh, which is uh, uh, which is uh, you know uh, spending infrastructure on uh, you know. Uh, hospitals, clinics, uh, to improve the social welfare of um, the lower middle classes uh, in in cities, help net migration as a result, um, give up um, uh, some of the or, or take over some of these you know unsold properties or half finished properties, finish them off, and uh, hand them over as part of, part of a master social housing plan, uh, which also have a a big impact on on improving. You know, uh, middle class, uh, middle class outcome. Um, maybe a bit of fiscal give back. Uh, I think we um, you know, handouts. I think would be relatively inexpensive compared to very expensive infrastructure projects. Uh, I think it was a comment that was made. Uh, I think that would. I, I think some would be good. Um, and um, you know, uh, another sort of point expressed was that uh, you know, just increasing taxes. On the rich um, won't necessarily, um, or, sorry, or sorry, giving tax cuts to the to uh, to the rich won't necessarily help the economy because there's a vast rural population that actually doesn't pay much tax, so uh, so they don't see the benefit in their pockets if there is a big fiscal tax cut. So I think a fiscal tra- uh, some sort of fiscal transfer seems to make um, make some sense to kind of get that uh, lower middle income plan. Have I missed anything on the Gerlach Afzal um, uh, fiscal plan. No, I think that's uh, that's pretty much, pretty much it. Uh. Last comment, um, Stefan, is is around Trump and the political situation, um, and um, you know, in terms of um, how kind of China reacts. Obviously, there was fears that if Trump comes in power later this year, that um, you know he'll put up tariffs. On, on Chinese exports. And I think that just re-emphasizes the focus on domestic economy and, the, and that middle class again. Yes, I mean, there was quite a bit concern uh, expressed about what uh, a second Trump uh, Trump administration, a Trump 2.0 could, uh, could do to China. Um, and I think the truth of the matter is that we have no idea what could, what could happen. The... The press is often arguing that Trump will take an exceptionally hard view with China and Chinese trade policy. They talk about large tariffs being introduced and and so on, which of course would not be good. Uh, It would not be good for China and it would not be good for the US and the global economy either, uh, I can say. Uh, we can say, um, but I guess we simply have to see what happens. Of course, if the Chinese economy was powered on to a greater extent uh, than in the past by the by consumption spending and so on that would of course help that would uh, that would help um, yeah so it, it's just it's just very difficult to to see c- clearly now what exactly might uh, might uh, might happen trump is very i mean he can change his mind on, on the spot uh, so it's it's just it's an enormous uh, degree of uncertainty and of course uncertainty is not good for uh, for economic activity, and it certainly isn't good for financial markets that price that in very quickly. Another comment which 
came back a number of times uh, to us. Uh, was this uh, the need to sort of turn around the stock market that has been that has been uh, declining for 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 now quite some time? Today is uh, the sixth of February. Equity markets in 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 China uh, jumped up uh, this morning. How how do you see this developing? Uh, Chinese equity prices developing. What do what do you think? Might be the main drivers here, and 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 should uh, should we be positive, or should we be continued, or should we continue to be negative about Chinese equity prices and Asian equity prices more broadly? Yeah, thanks for that nice lead in, uh, Stefan. So, the um, um, uh, sort of key thing, and we did, as you know, once we came back from from our trip, you know, the first thing we did was um, you know, talk to the teams and. Uh, we actually uh, changed our uh, equity allocations uh, at our last investment committee, which was uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and that was to uh, to close the big underweight we had in Asian equities. Obviously, China makes a big chunk of the, the Asian equity exposure. Uh, to close it up uh, to neutral, we've been underweight for uh, close on a, a year now, um, and um, and to downgrade our Japanese equity weighting. Um, which is maybe a little bit sort of contrarian, slightly controversial um, from um, investors because we've been running a, an overweight in Japan for a very long time, um, and to to move to underweight in Japan really to fund that sort of China uh, neutral or Asia equity neutral positioning, uh, and the logic was was uh, I think threefold. First of all, we felt that sentiment was so bad that all it needed was a a very small change in sentiment. From the top, um, to uh, to to get the market moving again, uh, as you note, um, Stefan, I think Hang Seng and, and the China Asia market up around four percent today. So quite a quite a big move. Um, the second is obviously relative valuation between Japan and China is, is just absolutely enormous. Uh, Japan has been one of the strongest markets over the last three or four years. Uh, in fact, over the last um, uh, twelve years, in local currency terms. The Nikkei has actually been one of the best performing stock markets in the world. Uh, obviously, currency adjusted is it, it isn't, but um, but I think that's quite interesting. It's up something like four hundred plus percent over the last twelve years, um, uh, and so it's done very well. So it was a natural funding source for for closing up our um, underweight in, uh, in in Asian equities. Um, so so you know, valuation differentials was was certainly one of them. Sentiment was the other. Uh, and I think the third thing is is that as Western Western observers or Western investors, um, we um, we're usually the last to know if there's a change. <laughs> and so, um, you know, as we saw in during the COVID policy, uh, you know, front that um, there was a very quick and and very violent U-turn, which led to sort of twenty percent move in the stock market in in a matter of weeks. And if you weren't there, you you actually missed it. So you have to kind of be quite anticipatory in your in your um uh, in your allocations uh to to the region because obviously obviously policy moves so fast um because it's centralized because it's in a bit of a vacuum uh, that you have to kind of anticipate the change rather than reacting to it which in in many cases is is too late um we'll see whether we're right uh in the coming in the coming months um to do that uh, I, I think it's too soon to be outright positive um and uh but certainly 
um, to to move to a neutral weight was probably the right uh, was probably the right uh, response to um, uh, to to change our policy. So so far so good. Um, feeling a lot more happy about that call this morning. Um, I think the Nikkei was down half a percent and the Hang Seng was up four percent. So that round trip alone is nearly four and a half percent in a day. Um, and, uh, you know, up until now, the round trip just on a year to date basis was something like 17, 17 percent. So, uh, you know, I call it at least 25 to 30 percent of that gap has already closed in a, in a single day. So, you know, um, I think our view of being sort of antici- anticipatory was uh, was probably right. Well, Stefan, I think that sort of concludes our thoughts, um, you know, today. Um, obviously, um, you know, so far has been a good market call. As I said, so far, <laughs> we kind of keep our fingers crossed uh, for the for the next couple of months. I think the the uh, National People's Congress uh, later in March is going to be the sort of the next catalyst point. Of course, we're now winding down into Chinese New Year. Uh, so it'll be relatively quiet, I think, over the next uh, week or so, or actually a week and a bit. Um, and no doubt we'll probably hear some more kind of news leaks, I suspect, uh, and and uh, talk uh, over the coming weeks. And then I guess there will be a, a lead up into the National People's Congress. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it will be interesting to see how policy will evolve in China. It's clear that uh, China has serious difficulties. It was made very clear to us that these difficulties are well understood by by officials and so on. And it is that sort of last bit from uh, into sort of changing policy then that remains. And uh, I think people were quite, much as they were disappointed by economic performance, they were quite upbeat about the possibility of, of effective uh, uh, policy, uh, new policies being introduced. And uh, they felt that uh, the authorities were actually quite pragmatic. And if push came to shove, they would do things. And uh, they felt that they had, uh, the Chinese authorities had quite a few tools at their disposal. And, um, you know, this is, uh, in a sense, there is a positive, uh, there is a, a positive view uh, as well uh, out there. So we just have to see how policy, economic policy will evolve here in the coming in the coming months, and in particular, how policy may change if there, if there is a Trump uh, victory in the elections in November. Stefan, thanks very much for that. Um, thank you very much for uh, being my companion, or should I say, I'm being your companion on this trip. Um, it was, uh, you know, very enjoyable. Uh, we got through a lot of meetings, uh, and I think, um, you know, with a lot of these sort of things, you always hope it's never the case, but you always hope there's some you know, some real world implications in terms of strategy and policy. And I think, uh, you know, I think that was certainly achieved on on this trip. So uh, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, it was a really fun trip, uh, I felt. And we had some extremely interesting conversation with people who are very, very knowledgeable about uh, about uh, these matters. So it did change my views of, of the Chinese economy quite quite a bit. And we just have to see what the future will hold. So, yeah, thanks very much, Moss. It was fun. So that wraps us up for uh, today on Beyond the Benchmark. Of course, uh, please listen in to even more interesting highlights. Um, we are also in parallel running a series uh, from our investment uh, summit um, conversations we had. So, uh, uh, we'll also be sort of playing that, so maybe a little bit more aired over the coming weeks as we uh, as we share some of the the uh, very interesting insights we had from the investment summit uh, of VFG earlier this year. So thank you very much, and speak to you soon.